Today on Basic, John Slattery from Mad Men. If I'm not mistaken, you read for the role of Don Draper before you read for Roger, right? I did. Only because there wasn't much of Roger in the pilot script. I had to call my agent back and say, really, are you sure? Because I looked older than the part and I wasn't getting parts that age at that point. So I did my homework and I went in and read and did a couple of passes at it. And that's when he told me, well, here, here's the thing. We already have this guy. And then he claims that I was in a bad mood the whole time when we shot the pilot because he had lied to me, which I don't think it, I don't think that was true. I think we shot the pilot in New York and I think I was just maybe skeptical. You hedge your bets a little bit emotionally anyway. You kind of protect yourself. Well, you know, we'll see. And again, the part wasn't that much in evidence in the pilot. So I kind of felt like I had one foot in and one foot out. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Basic, the official podcast of the unofficial history of cable television. I'm Doug Herzog, a former TV executive, and I'm just back from a three-martini lunch. And I'm Jen Cheney, TV critic at Vulture and New York Magazine, and I drink because it's what men do. I'm pretty excited today, Jen. Our guest today was a star of one of Basic Cable's most celebrated shows, and I think a personal favorite of both you and myself. Yes, we are talking about Mad Men, and we are welcoming John Slattery, who played Roger Sterling, a senior partner at the various iterations of the fictional ad agency on Mad Men. He's played many roles on TV and film, but Roger Sterling is the one that he's best known for. Roger was a quick-witted ladies' man and a heavy drinker who also got to deliver some of the sharpest lines in Mad Men history. The show was the first basic cable show to win an Emmy for Best Drama, something that had been the domain of primarily network shows or HBO shows. Over seven seasons, it went on to win 16 Emmys and five Golden Globes. And perhaps more surprisingly, it came from the AMC network, who at that time was considered kind of a B-level cable network that was most known for airing old movies. But Mad Men captured a very specific era in American history with extraordinary style and some of the best writing and performances ever on television. I think that's right. I think it's also safe to say that its quality and success took everyone by surprise. We're going to get right to our conversation with John, but stay right after as Jen and I will be at the bar to recap our conversation over a couple of dirty martinis. We are so excited to welcome John Slattery to the Basic Podcast. Doug and I are huge Mad Men fans, so this is very exciting. But before we start talking about Mad Men, we have to ask you the question we ask everyone who comes on the podcast, which is, do you remember when you first got or saw Basic Cable Television? You know, I've been thinking about that, and I think we got Basic Cable in like 85, where I was living, except at that point I had left home, finished college, was on the road with a touring group and and then moved to Brooklyn where I don't think I had a TV. <laughs> so I remember people talking about getting basic cable and I remember my brother in MTV and, 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 and him, you know, sort of becoming addicted to that. But no, the answer is I remember when I didn't get basic cable. <laughs> <laughs> Because I didn't have a television and no money and had just moved to New York. And I also remember not having, you know, trying to get through the scramble to see something untoward or adult. In our prior residence, we moved from Newton, Massachusetts to Wellesley. And before we moved to the mean streets of Wellesley, I, uh, I remember trying to sift through the scramble to see if you could see any, anything uh, going on. That was, those were the good old days, yeah. Did you have any luck? Occasionally, you'd be like, I, you, you couldn't remember if you, you couldn't actually just, you know, did I imagine that? Did I actually see that? Anyway, that's a long winded answer, which the short uh, end of which is not really. 
<laughs> yeah. But so but you did mention growing up in uh, New England and uh, you grew up right in the sort of greater Boston area. That's right. And wanted to be a ball player when you were a kid? Was that was that your first uh, your first instinct? Big sports family, played a lot of everything. My uncle was the traveling secretary for the Red Sox. So oh, we wow. kind of lived in Fenway Park, my a whole bunch of cousins and, and, and I. Uh, yeah, you know, only the, the sort of kid aspirations and the older I got, the less likely that was apparently going to become. I was in the bleachers at the Bucky Dent game, and I am a Yankee fan. I just have to reveal that, John. Just uh... oh, all right. God, This is going to go terribly from here on in. I was at that game, too. <laughs> Hopefully we can get through this. And I was at the game prior to that where they got into that playoff game. Were you there? Uh, yeah. Anyway. Were they t- yeah, were they tied it up? Yeah, 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 yeah. Right, exactly. Yeah. Before Mad Men, you were in a number of things. I think a lot of people remember you for your run on Sex in the City. I mm. fondly remember you from Ed, which is a show that I feel like people don't talk about enough because it was such a great show. It was a good show. So you, you obviously had done a lot, but then Mad Men comes along. And if I'm not mistaken, you read for Don's for the role of Don Draper before you read for Roger, right? I did. I, only because there wasn't much of Roger in the pilot script. Mm-hmm. I had, was doing a play, uh, the David Lindsay Bear play called Rabbit Hole with Cynthia Nixon. And I think Matt had come to see that. Okay. And asked me to read for the part of Don. Yeah, and I had to call my agent back and say, really, are you sure? Because I looked older than the part and I wasn't getting parts that age at that point. And so I did call back to check and they said, no, that's what they said. So I did my homework and I went in and read and did a couple of passes at it. And that's when he told me, well, here, here's the thing. We already have this guy. And then he claims that I was in a bad mood the whole time <laughs> when we shot the pilot because he had lied to me, which I don't think it, I don't think that was true. I think we shot the pilot in New York and I think I was just maybe skeptical. I remember giving somebody a ride home, an actor, Darren Petty who was in the show for years. We were both like, well, AMC hadn't done much original programming. They had a little bit, but we just kind of, you know, you hedge your bets a little bit emotionally anyway. You kind of protect yourself. Well, you know, we'll see. And again, the part wasn't that much in evidence in the pilot. So right. I kind of felt like I had one foot in and one foot out. Did Matthew tell you that he had plans for Roger to be a bigger character or did you just not know at that point? No, he told me and I was a huge Sopranos fan and I had known that a little bit socially because we had mutual friends from that show from Sopranos and uh, mm-hmm. and he told me that I promise you this will be a great part but you know I'd heard that before and you hear that all the time. <laughs> sure. Right. The harder someone tries to sell you usually the the, the less likely it's going to be a good part. And he, it wasn't a super hard sell. He was just like, I promise you, this will be a great part. And you could see how good the script was. Mm-hmm. But I think he said the same thing to January Jones, which she played uh, Betty in that in the last scene. You don't even know he's married until he comes home and right. she wakes up. So I, I guess it, she took it on faith as well. And, and it turned out pretty well for her as well. And the AMC of it all, they really were, they weren't on the map at all in those days in terms of original program you said they had tried their hand here and there but you know they were mostly known i think for running old movies right they were and they but they had they had a show i forget the name of it they had a show about it's something that clicked a little bit like a radio station a period show oh, oh right yeah, right about the I 40s that. radio right right yeah right i remember that but yeah they were they were you know we no one you, you couldn't People would say A and E, and you know, or nobody knew how to find them or or what it was all about. So, 
I think everybody was skeptical. But you could, but but there was no skepticism about how good that script was, and then how good the subsequent scripts were, which was to me even more surprising because it was clear that he was good on his on his word, Matt. That is, mm-hmm. and the parts were terrific, and we would go in to do these table reads. Did it get a quick pickup, like between the pilot and and getting started? Was there? Uh... I don't think so. I think it, it took a minute, and then Matt had to finish his Sopranos obligation which so it it was like a year until we started shooting it again it might have gotten picked up for a while so that we you know i mean so that we had a while knowing the show was going to go right but again i'm i'm fuzzy on it's been a while you know i just i i asked that because knowing cable television economics you know like i did it's big bite you know to do a show like this for any cable network and i'm sure they you know as good as that pilot was i'm sure they really thought long and hard before they made the commitment because it was going to be a lot more money than they had ever spent before i promise you that yeah so years yeah years interesting as much as lavish as it looked it was i don't think the budgets were very big and that we were seven day episode which is amazing when you think you know how long it takes some like hbo would shoot twice that right Mm -hmm. and wouldn't blink we were pretty tight but anyway the the scripts got better and better and i remember just commenting on like this isn't usually the way this goes usually that takes a really long time to write the pilot script and it's fussed over and considered and and paid a lot of attention to and then the show gets a pickup and then you're off and running and you've got to crank out a show every 10 days and and the quality can go down you know take a dip but uh that's not what happened obviously i mean that's one of the great things many great things about Mad Men to me is that it felt like everything was considered you know nothing was in there by accident in terms of the writing or, or anything else but I, i'm curious so in season one was there a point where you were like okay this roger sterling guy is a great character like there was a moment when you really hooked into him it was right away it was like i think we were walking into elizabeth moss and i were walking into a a table read and i was like is it me or are these scripts getting better each week and she agreed and we were you know it, it was clear right away that 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 the whole world had been considered that he'd been thinking about this for a long time mm-hmm. and which he you know he says he's subsequently said he had the whole thing mapped out mm-hmm. i mean not where the whole thing went but the the you know the a vision of this world yeah yeah it was really i mean i've been just literally coincidentally rewatching with my wife and just it's amazing how it just whole every part of it holds up just every every scene every character every costume every set and it just yeah. it just all feels like it's been there forever how it felt also as a viewer that it took off really quickly in terms of its popularity and acceptance and critical acclaim um is that how you remember it and and how did that you know how did that feel on the set and how did that impact you guys I remember toiling away in obscurity for a little while. I think we were there. We were on the we were we were at L.A. Center Studios downtown, so we weren't oh, wow. at one of the big studios in Hollywood or in you know the Valley. It got uniformly good reviews. I remember there was a poster with all the quotes, and it was just basically a full sized poster with just newspapers all over the all over the place and quotes from everywhere. But there was a period where we were just kind of working away and then came on the air. I'm, I'm sure John Hamm has a different recounting of it because his life changed pretty quickly. Mm-hmm. I think everybody's did. And there was a lot of attention and publicity. And then, but I don't really remember. I think it took a little beat 
And then also, I think, and, and I haven't you know talked about this in a long time, but I remember someone either bringing it up or acknowledging that being able to record shows came into being at this point in time. So you could go back and get the show or you could TiVo the whole thing or whatever, you DVR the whole thing. That's right. So that if it wasn't like if someone told you about a show and you're like, well, I guess I missed that boat. You couldn't, you, you know, you could go back and see the beginning of this. Mm-hmm. And that made a big difference. Pantheon Podcast listeners, Christian Swain here to tell you more about my experience with Raycon earbuds. Our family now has three pairs of Raycon earbuds around the house, and my wife just grabbed a pair of the headphone pros to replace some headphones from a company that was double the price. And yes, she loves them. Now, if you haven't pulled the trigger on a pair of Raycons, or even if you have, but you're in the market for another pair because they're just that good, well, now is the time to check them out because they just launched their upgraded model of the best-selling everyday earbuds. With Raycon's upgraded everyday earbuds, now you also get active noise cancellation, ergonomic design, and multi-point connectivity that lets you pair with two devices at once. New quick charge function, three customizable sound styles plus awareness mode, available in a variety of vibrant new colors to complement any and all skin tones. I even have a pair of earbuds in a cool green color. I have tried just about every earbud known to humankind, and these Raycons are fantastic. Seriously, if you've been wanting to check out Raycons, there truly is no better time. You're going to ask yourself why you didn't check them out sooner, and Raycon offers a 30-day happiness guarantee. So what are you waiting for? Go to buyraycon.com slash pantheon today to get 20% off your Raycon order, plus free shipping. That's right. You'll get 20% off and free shipping at buyraycon.com slash pantheon. Buyraycon.com slash pantheon. Hey folks, Stefan Shirazi and Renee Richardson here from the Metallica Report. And we are proud members of the Pantheon Podcast family, where the best of music and podcasts unite. We've got something pretty cool for you. We're giving away an exclusive Metallica merch package worth over $250. That's a whole lot of scary guys, skulls, M72, and other sought-after Metallica swag. And we've made it easy for you to win. Follow and share the Metallica Report, and you're in the game. Go to pantheonpodcast.com slash Metallica, enter your email, and hit that button to be entered to win. And just like that, you're eligible for our monthly exclusive Metallica merch package. And guess what, rockers? You can enter every month. So just do it. And while we love our global brothers and sisters, the lawyers won't let us ship outside the U.S. This was also when it started to become more apparent that whatever your overnight ratings were, which were always like sort of the gospel of figuring out whether a show was successful, were not capturing how much impact a show was having. Right. Because Mad Men was having a huge cultural impact, even if, like you said, the overnight ratings might not show that, but people were watching it on on their own time. Yeah. And I remember I, I worked at the Washington Post at the time, and I actually wrote about television, but literally everyone in the newsroom when, that, when Mad Men was popular wanted to write about Mad Men. Like, mm. it was like everybody wanted to do recaps. I'm like, some of you need to be covering the White House. This is my department. Like, calm down. <laughs> but that, but it spoke to how much people loved the show. And I wanted to ask you about a few scenes, really memorable scenes, as sort of a window into the process, starting with one in season one when um, Roger and Don go out and 
Roger just eats a few too many oysters and has a few too many martinis and throws up on the members of uh, Nixon's campaign. Uh, Mad Men would do these sort of like kind of, for lack of a better word, gross out moments every once in a while, like the lawnmower. Don throws up at your, uh, is it your mom's memorial service, I think? Yeah. Um, a memorial service. <laughs> My mom's funeral. Yeah. Always a good place what to. What prince. Yeah. <laughs> so what do you remember about shooting that that sequence when you had to basically upchuck on these poor men? I remember we shot the scene, the oyster eating scene at Musso and Frank's. We used to shoot a lot there. It's a great iconic restaurant in, in Hollywood for those that don't know. And it's, it's got three different sort of rooms. There's the front room, which is sort of booths lined up. And then there's a, there's a kind of a counter in the back and there's looks almost like a breakfast area. And then there's a more formal side on the other side of the, uh, in this room, on the more formal side with a sort of etched glass divider. So you could shoot there. You could shoot a whole episode there because it looked mm -hmm. like four different locations. So we would shoot a lot there. And we were in a booth that scene, the scene that, you know, the, the, one of the best parts about that is you don't see it coming is that you, you forget that, that this is revenge, that he's doing this on purpose, you know, mm -hmm. pumping him full of oysters and martinis to get him to, you know, I'm not sure he intended to embarrass him in front of the Nixon people, but just to out drink him, outdo him and show him that it, it, because it was, um, cause you had hit on uh, Roger had hit on Betty. Cause I had hit on Betty at his house, you know, the, the week before Tim Hunter directed it, who was terrific and directed uh, some great early episodes. And just the funny dialogue about like Lucille Ball getting married and, and divorced twice. And how does that work? Oh yeah, you wake up in the morning and go, oh yeah, I forgot I hate you. Or, <laughs> or how much they like redheads or, or whatever they were talking about. And then there was the long sequence going up the stairs, which we shot at LA Center in the stairwell. And then the, the actual vomit part was, um, you know how usually you see in a movie and it's just basically an actor has like a mouthful of a Campbell soup or something. And then kind of, yeah. it's always a sort of, it's difficult to actually make it look like there's something else. There's something actually, you know, an eruption. And so there was a hose, you know, and a, and an upstage side, you know, mm -hmm. hidden. And then that, I just saw that actually the other day. It's pretty funny. <laughs> <laughs> and it was, you know, I, forget what it was but that's how they rigged it and that's i just saw the movie um triangle of sadness have you seen that where that whole oh. sequence i was just gonna say triangle of sadness and yeah. i think there's some rigging going on there because it's pretty impressive yeah there would have to be but yeah that was a great fun i mean you know john and i had such fun scenes to shoot together and we hit it off right away day one we had a long scene where he was doing most of the talking while taking his shirt off getting a clean shirt out of the desk unwrapping it, putting it back on, uh, you know, re-buttoning it, putting his thing back, tying his tie. We were just, you know, and I had the easy part was just sort of pop, you know, piping in every fourth line. But we hit it off right away. And, and, and all those scenes were such a good time. We always knew how to work off of each other. And, um, you know, that, that was uh, uh, one of the early ones that was really fun. Mm -hmm. Going from drunk to high, what uh, what do you remember about the world famous uh, LSD episode? The LSD episode was um, a couple of things. I remember we we like some of the gags, like the cigarette when I took it, a puff of the cigarette and it shrinks down, was actually a, a, a physical gag where the cigarette had a, two 
strings coming out from behind it that would, I guess, on the upstage side, I would hold the cigarette and then somebody would yank on the actual rope and the cigarette would kind of accordion in, you know, you, as opposed to, which, which I think was great because you can't really, you can do CGI and stuff like that, but it never really right. looks as good. And it looks kind of clunky and old school. By the way, just J- J- John, speaking of cigarettes, I know there's a dopey question. What, what, because uh, cigarettes are omnipresent throughout the entire series and, and, and yeah. very much, you're, you're almost, you're rarely seen without one. What what are you using? Are they cigarettes or are they so- something else? A stage? Yeah, those fake cigarettes that they, you know, that, what are they called? Honey Rose, I think. Mm. Good pull. I think they're called Honey Rose. You guys had a big budget for that stuff. Fistfuls. I mean, like they were <laughs> disgusting. And they, I mean, they, you know, fine. They're, they, they, they're, they serve their purpose. They're not, there's no nicotine in them, I guess. Right. I was going to say the secondhand smoke problem would have been awful there. I had quit smoking because I used to smoke. Yeah, it's pretty, it's pretty gross. Oh, you used to smoke and you quit. I quit. Oh, wow. So this must have been hard. I, I had quit. I had gotten hypnotized. It, it, for some reason it didn't, it, it didn't make me go back to smoking it. I think it it created a few smokers. <laughs> I think some of those guys didn't smoke and then did afterwards for a while. Yeah, because I mean, I think obviously the addiction is to the nicotine, but there's also something when you get used to just having something in your hand that like you feel like you're naked if you don't have something in your hand. It is a great prop too. I mean, it's just, you know, there was a rule if you can't smoke, you can't smoke if you don't know how. And, you know, people would come in and there'd be restaurants full of background people or, or guests, you know, day players or whatever. And it would be clear right away whether somebody was a smoker or not. And it's it's a great prop unless it's unless you don't know how to use one, unless you don't smoke. And then it's very distracting mm-hmm. because you, you you spot it a mile away. Oh, that's interesting. Right. Yeah. I want to ask you about another scene, which you are in, but I believe you also directed this episode as well, Signal 30. The scene I wanted to ask you about in particular is one of my favorites in the whole show, which is when Pete gets into the fight with Lane and you and and, and Don are watching. And I, I imagine that required some blocking and just some figuring out, you know, just positioning and stuff like that. Was that, yeah. was that a challenging, particularly challenging scene to direct? Or like you said, did it just kind of direct itself because it was just all the pieces were already there? Well, yeah. I mean, the, the, the shot listing of it was, and, and trying to figure out how to shoot it was challenging, but I'm trying to think. I remember one thing with is that Jared Harris had hurt his neck. I forget. I don't know what, how he did it, but he had hurt his neck. He had a disc issue, and he was shooting a scene for Lincoln, the the, the mm-hmm. Spielberg movie, and he was supposed to be General Grant, I think, and he was arriving on this on his horse, and he had to tell Steven Spielberg that he couldn't ride. And Spielberg was like, I'm sorry, because there was this huge set piece. And he said, I've hurt my neck. I can't ride a horse. Mm-hmm. And, it, and, and, and if he couldn't ride a horse, you know, it, it was going to be tricky to put him in a, in, a, in a boxing match. So we choreographed it in that conference room and then stunt coordinators and all that, making sure that nobody hit each other. But it, it was touch and go as to whether Jared was going to be able to actually, he was more of a sort of, you know, bare knuckles, you know, his his style was very upright and it wasn't until he threw a couple of punches that he was like, okay, I think I'm all right. And, and, and luckily Pete's the one that gets knocked down. So he didn't really have to fall. And, but yeah, it was, it took some doing. I mean, again, it was just a great story. So I was, I'm, I feel lucky to have gotten that script. But I mean, it all looked very real. Like some fight scenes you can tell where they're sort of cheating a little bit and that 
that does not look like they're cheating at all. So that's a testament to you, I think. Well, just to, I think the writing leading up to it, doesn't he say something like he calls him, he, he calls him, I don't know, Pete says something horrible to him and he says, that's it, that's it. He takes his coat off yes. and he, he goes, okay, grandpa, you want to take your teeth out or you want me to knock them out? I mean, just the greatest, the funniest, and, P, and you know, Vincent Carthizer. Is that I think that might have been my favorite character on the show because I love Pete Campbell. I hate him and I love him. <laughs> and, and 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 he was always right. I mean, you look back and he was right about everybody. Kennedy on down. I mean, as far, you know, as, as far as what direction the place should go, and he just you know had issues with his mo. But he's just great, and 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 very much you know. A, a, a huge departure from Vincent's actual personality too, mm-hmm. which was a testament to his skill in playing that guy. Cause that was not who he is. So there was a point there where Matt and AMC had a pretty long, maybe contentious uh, renegotiation at some point and that got things got held up a little bit. So once the, once all the smoke cleared, was it business as usual after that or things change at all or sort of continue, nothing to really report there? I think Matt would have a different story having been on right. the inside of that. But for us, it was a long period not doing the show. And then I think it changed schedules. It used to be, for myself, it used to be, my wife, Talia, played Mona. Right. And we had a little kid when we started. He was six years old. That's when we, My son, Harry, when we started, he was six. And when, we, when in the last episode aired, he was 16. Wow. So wow. it was, you know, and it was like that for all of us. I mean, it was, you know, a large chunk of our lives was spent, you know, doing the show. Not all the time. It was usually about half the year, but it was in the summer. Usually we would go out to L.A. and we would, you know, kind of find a place to live and do that. And then it flipped. So when after that negotiation, when we started shooting, it was a different it was like from the fall to the spring. So that meant I and I, we've always lived in New York, whereas most of the other cast. I think all of them lived in LA. So I was on a plane all the time mm. just because Talia wasn't in it as much because Roger had gotten divorced. And, and so Mona wasn't in the show every episode. And, um, and so it basically changed my life in that way. But I don't being back on the show and, and um, after that negotiation, it didn't to me change the, you know, the expectation of the show or the quality of it in any, in any way. When, when the show ended, did you get the opportunity to take any kind of a souvenir, a costume, a, a prop or anything like that, that you wanted? I have a lamp oh. from my office, a modern, beautiful lamp that is in my uh, house. Yeah. But I don't really see it every day. There wasn't any place to put it, but it's, it's in my basement actually. Yeah, everybody was like, yeah, you'd keep all those suits. And the last thing you wanted to keep was one of those suits. First of all, you've been wearing it for 10 years and it stunk. You know, <laughs> they, they didn't stink. But, they, you know, they, they, I don't think anybody knows that people don't know that, that, you know, there are studios keep the clothes after you finish movies and television. And then they, you know, there's a giant stage uh, costume departments have hundreds and thousands of suits and, and everything you can imagine from every kind of thing. So when you do a job, you go in and you try on, you end up wearing someone else's suit from 1935 or 1945 or whatever it was in the beginning of this. So it's a collection of old stuff 
and stuff that they had made. And so by the time you finish using it, it, it it's, uh, it's a little ripe. Going back and watching, as I have been, as I, as I mentioned earlier, you know, there's the dynamic between the men and the women in the office, very much uh, appropriate for the time, you know, fair amount of sexism, a little bit of misogyny. A little. <laughs> a lot. <laughs> uh, you know, we now live in a culture that's paying a lot more attention to that. But just, I mean, could you talk about, um, and also the female characters uh, pushing back in a way which uh, may or may not have been appropriate at the time. Can you talk a little bit about um, how that was portrayed on the show and and uh, and what you guys thought of it at the time? Well, I mean, it was sort of the point mm-hmm. of, exactly. of the whole exercise was showing people who were witnesses to history, who were witnesses to that to that history. They weren't the history makers. They were the you know like everyone else. They were witness to some of the momentous moments in 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 the. the the period in which that show took place from the misogyny to the racism, to the anti-Semitism, right from the very beginning, the, 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 the first scene, one of the first scenes Don's in a bar and a, and a, and he's asking, trying to figure out lucky strike and he's out of ideas. He's got block. He's totally blocked. And he asks the, the uh, waiter in the bar who's black about, his preference of cigarettes. I think he had his cigarettes in his, in his breast pocket. And he said, no, when we used to, he goes, why do you smoke those? He said, well, when I was in the army, this is what they gave us. So it was, I think it's something like that. I'm probably, you know, fudging that, but, and then he gets, and then a white uh, uh, manager comes over and says, is he bothering you? And he's like, no, just asking the guy a question. They said, you know, get, so like it was immediate, it was immediately clear that it wasn't, that this was what the show was about. Mm-hmm. It wasn't a story that took place in a world that 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 peripherally happened. It was settled right in the middle of it, and and that was the whole point of it. So, well, it was done, it was, it was and it was done very well from beginning to end, incredibly well. Yeah, um, yeah, and and subtly and off center, and it always you know like the show, it always came at subjects from an unexpected angle. I mean, JFK gets assassinated and it was the the point of view was from our family our daughter getting married so you know what do you do in a situation where you you've got this momentous occasion in your own family and it's, and, 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 and something like that happens it, it's just an interesting angle on on on, on so much of it yeah was, well what i would say is you know you could watch tv shows that were made five years ago or 10 years you know, well, in your case 10 years ago but you watch that you know, you look back at them now and they just, they don't really hold up as well in that regard or feel as right, given where the world has been going, where the culture has been going. And um, I think, you know, I mean, I think that's part of the timelessness and the brilliance of Mad Men is it just, it all, it all feels right, um, yeah. even now in 2023. Well, um, I also think it's very tricky to do a show that shows the reality, as you were just describing, John, but doesn't condone it. And you can feel in the way it's presented that it's not condoning it, but it's also not preachy about it either. I think that's a really tricky balance to get right. And and like you said, incorporating the actual events in in history, it did that in a very elegant way. You know, uh, I I won't name any movies or TV shows, but I've seen many that don't do it in such an elegant way. And I think Mad Men really distinguished itself for that. Yeah, I think he had the confidence and the ability to to 
tell the story of that period in in such a kind of an iconic but offhand way, you know, sort of mm-hmm. left of center way. No pun intended there politically. Um, but, you know, <laughs> just sort of didn't ever bang on the head. It was always just, you know, coming at an angle. You go, ha, oh, that, you know, that I, I would not have have described that period that way. You know, the death of, of, of Marilyn Monroe and how Christina Hendricks character took it so so hard and right. I don't know it was just it was always interesting yeah mm-hmm. you mentioned what great chemistry you had with John Hamm when you were working on Mad Men and you've obviously stayed connected and worked together again uh, most recently in Confess Fletch which mm-hmm. I loved I, in fact I wrote an entire piece for Vulture about how much I love seeing you guys together again because that there's that one two shot of you in the bar that is like almost identical to a two shot from Mad Men uh, and it just really delighted me is there any chance that they're going to make another one of those? Because the end of that movie really sets it up for a sequel. But what are the odds of that happening? Pretty good, I think. Yeah? I think it did well. I think the movie did well. I think it did well internationally. I think they that was the plan. Was there's, there's There are like 11 of those books. Mm-hmm. Three of them now have been done, maybe. Right. Um, with Fletch, the, the Chevy, and then they did a sequel, and then this one. So there's still a lot of that material, and I think that's that that, that stands a pretty good chance. Speaking of uh, John Hamm, tell us about your uh, most recent project, where uh, feature film you directed with John and uh, Tina Tina Fey, right? Right, movie called Maggie Moore's, which um, just got a, a dis- just distribution deal, domestic deal here. Congratulations, thank you. Which I produced and directed. It's Tina and John and uh, Nick Mohammed. Oh, nice. From Ted Lasso, among other things. A great performance by a guy named Micah Stock, who's got a sort of central role in it. And it's based on a, it's a comedy about a double murder. It's based on a a true story. Two women with the same name in the same town in the same week were found dead and they never figured it out. Huh. And uh, that's, that's what it's about. And is it going to get a theatrical release or a streaming or you're not? It'll be a theatrical release in June. Oh, June. Okay. I didn't realize yeah. the date had already been announced. Yeah. I don't think there's an actual date yet, but I, as far as I'm told, June okay. is the uh, is when it'll be released. Yeah. In okay. theaters. So is your focus more on directing projects now, or is it just kind of a split between acting and directing? Like what, what are you kind of most invested in at this point? You know, you do one and you just can't wait to do the other because the last thing you want to do is direct another movie, at least for me. I don't know. I mean, it's always that way too. You finish a TV show and you're like, I just want to go do a play or, a, or something that isn't this. So I, yeah, I mean, I like directing very much. Um, it's, it, it takes a while to get things set up. It takes a long time to, you know, the whole thing takes a couple of years mm-hmm. between the, the start and then then throw COVID in there. So it was stop, start, stop, start a couple of times. So it's, it's, and then, you know, it's a weird time for movies. It's tricky raising money. It's tricky selling movies. And then it's kind of a, a crapshoot as to where they end up. Gets mm-hmm. gets a little easier when you get uh, John and, and Tina, right, to uh, to agree to do this. It definitely helps, yeah. But, I mean, just as far as people with the way they view movies, you know, you used to, I used to go to the movies all the time and people don't go as much. And I remember telling someone I saw their movie that they directed and they said, where? And I said, on I, on the flight back from LA. And they kind of <laughs> hung their head like, Aww. don't ever tell anybody you saw their movie on an airplane. <laughs> right. And I was on a plane the other day and I was like, I'd be 
thrilled if 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 I walked down the aisle and people were watching this movie on an airplane, because that's where people watch movies a lot these days, or you know, I guess or or at home on television. This will have the theatrical release, which I'm thrilled about because mm -hmm. there's no substitute for a couple hundred people in a room in the dark watching it. You know, you the, the, it's just different. The experience is different, and it's uh, better mm -hmm. as far as telling a story and 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 you know the, the the experience i think i mean it's a hard time for everybody tv as well like even they've shot entire seasons of shows and been like eh never mind we're not going to show you that it's scary yeah well you know mad men i think is part plays a role in all that you know there was you know there was the, the era of mad men and the era that introduced i think with you know the kind of programming that people on tv were doing beyond hbo really began to fill you know that's what you used to go to the movies for right on a friday night they would right. make the they would make a, the kind of movie that you, that you just made john you know which is right. a you know great high concept great cast you know people you wanted to see great story and um they kind of stopped doing that in the movie business and and then and the quality of the television shows you know just they were making more they were making great 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 shows and and then of course streaming came along and you know certainly people like me thought well maybe i'll just stay home friday night there's something good on TV to watch versus having to go to the movies for that kind of quality. Yeah. Complicated stories, not necessarily, you know, I don't know. I mean, it's, 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 I don't know the economics of it or make it weird. I mean, the, 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 the movie going experience, I, I, I mean, the, the whole process, I don't know. I don't know what the answer is to get people to go back to the theaters. I guess mm -hmm. there's an uptick of late, but right. Mm -hmm. And I hope they're, I hope, it comes back. Yeah. The television, the, the material in television has been phenomenal and that's where those stories are. Yeah. But I, I wonder, especially in the current climate, I feel like if Mad Men had started like a year ago, maybe like it mm. might not have gone, gone all the way to seven seasons. Like, cause they're just canceling so many things. And Mad Men is the kind of show that is a slow burn and it takes its time. And I just could see them. I mean, I don't know if you agree. Yeah. I, I, yeah. I, I don't, I think Mad Men just on, uh, critical acclaim buzz you know i'm sure it, it did it did very good ratings for amc yeah maybe not walking dead but it did incredibly great you know and i think i think that i think mad men just on quality lives i think there are a lot of shows out there that you know it's a it's a niche business you know it's a where you you the the requirements i mean look at you know they're all single digits i mean if if you got eight million people watching a show in 1990 whatever you you wouldn't have made the second episode right so i yeah i i i think i agree with doug that it's it was good it was so good and so specific that it would have it would have survived but it, it's hard to cut through the noise i mean that's the thing is like how do you right how do you get people's attention right. a lot of choices when you can literally fill up your car with gas and there's there's a tv show playing on the gas pump <laughs> <laughs> you're like this is it's it's just stuff is everywhere yeah, and by the way, that was my comment was not at all about the quality of the show. I've just become no, yeah, I get extremely it. cynical in the past couple months as I've seen so many shows getting canceled that I think are very, very good. So that's where that's coming from. I'm mad at the cable execs like Doug. <laughs> no, streaming execs, not cable execs. Streaming oh, yes. Execs. Oh, absolve yourself of all responsibility. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Sure. <laughs> What's your favorite show that got canceled? You know, there's a great show that was on Showtime called Work in Progress that I really loved that got canceled. Jason Kadams made a show last year that focused on these autistic young adults that was really lovely and beautiful, and it got canceled. Uh, so, I mean, hmm. 
there, I could make a list probably all day. Yeah. She, jo- she watches a lot of TV, John. I do. I'm a TV critic. It's my <laughs> it's job. Her job. <laughs> it's her job. You want to uh, – Got anything uh, Anything else you want to cover, Jim, for the no, last No, I, I don't want to keep John too much longer, so I yeah. think we should ask him our, right. our, our usual last question, uh, which is, aside from things that you've worked on yourself, what is your favorite basic cable television show of all time? Oh, my God. <laughs> basic cable television show of all time. Oh, I just remembered what that AMC show was. It was called Remember When. Oh, that's oh, right. Wow. Oh, yeah, yeah. Glad we cleared that up. <laughs> Ironic that we couldn't we couldn't remember it. <laughs> I don't think I have an answer for this. I don't. How could I not have an answer for this? And I know I should have thought about this, and I tried, but like, <laughs> do you go Breaking Bad? Do you go? Well, uh, I would. I, I tried not to. I, I and I didn't want to say Breaking Bad because you know we used to have this like sort of rivalry with Breaking Bad where we would go to the Emmys. And we would get a bunch of acting nominations and and they would, you know, we would all get nominated for all kinds of stuff. And then we would lose all the acting nominate, all the acting awards we would lose. And I would be the first one that lost every night. Right. right. That's, that's supporting actors early in the show. Every that, right? award show. I was the first one that lost. I'd be sitting there and Ham would be sitting in front of me and he would go, get away from me. Go. <laughs> <laughs> He'd go, you loser. Get get away! Get that! Go sit over there, because and and then we won the best show there for a few years in a row, and they would win all the acting awards. So they were sort of, and I never, I don't know, for whatever reason, I watched pilot, and then I stopped, and I, and then I went back during COVID, and I watched it, and I. Oh really? Yeah. It's pretty hard to uh, to dispute how great it is. Well, mm-hmm. we'll, t- we'll take that. We'll take that as your answer. And those guys are so great. <laughs> so that maybe a little little Saul thrown in there. That's sort of. Oh, yeah, sure. Great. Yeah. That's a great, great show shows. also. Well, yeah. John, we really appreciate uh, having you today. We appreciate you spending some time with us. It was uh, great to talk to you. Thank you very much for having me. I appreciate it. So um, that was a great discussion with John Slattery. And we had a little point of of debate toward the end there when I said that I wasn't sure Mad Men would be made for a full seven seasons if it got greenlit, you know, in the past couple of years, only because I just think that uh, streamers and, and cable networks are just, they just don't have a lot of patience to, to wait and see what kind of cultural impact something is going to make. And uh it's not a knock on Mad Men. I think it's great, but uh, I'm glad it came along when it did because I'm not sure it it would have been able to have the life it did if it had come along a little bit later. Well, I'm gonna I, I'm gonna disagree a little bit, like I did on uh, in our previous conversation, in that I think if it got on the air, it probably had a decent chance of continuing, at least the way I remember the way you know it sort of you know built. But I think that I think maybe the bigger question is is it would anybody greenlight a show in 2023 about a bunch of white guys, you know, going back to a day when, you know, sort of white men, you know, sort of ruled the ruled the roost in a very particular way would would that would that, you know, forget about how elegantly the show was done and how brilliantly mm-hmm. it was written and everything about it, but you know, would that pass to smell test, you know, at for a development executive or a or a streaming exec in 2023. I mean, it's, a, it's an interesting question. Again, I think the thing about Mad Men to me was that it was presenting these guys, but not 
condoning their behavior. And over time, and, e- and even in some of the earlier seasons, like the women were the real heroes, yes. um, Joan and Peggy, and, and Peggy, even yep. to some extent, Betty for putting up with Don's bullshit. Like, right. And I think that I always sensed that watching the show. I never sensed that they thought these guys, these guys are great, aren't they hilarious? Although there are certainly people who could watch it and come away with that attitude. But I do think because it is so subtle, that might be an issue as well. But I also think it's the kind of show that just, like I said, it takes its time. It's really detail-oriented. And the reason I think that we love these characters so much, or at least, you know, I miss them a great deal, is because it had the ability to do that, to just let you, like, hang out with these people and observe them in a way that a show that's, like, super plot-driven and has to be, you know, X number of episodes, like, can't do that. And by the way, in a way that I, I'm trying to think of another show I could even compare to it in 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 the regard that you just you know sort of pointed out, it it really feels singular in that regard. Well, I mean, there are shows that take their time and that are very focused on human behavior as opposed to plot. But no, but I mean, you're going back to what you said about you know the time, the place, and the, the uh-huh. characters that inhabited it, and you know, it almost it just it almost feels like a snapshot of a particular time and place and the and the people who are living in it. Um, you know, sort of anything else. I'm, I'm not sure I've ever f- felt that way about another show. Well, and as we've talked about, I think like nostalgia drives so much of what, uh, you know, ends up being on our screens. And often now it's nostalgia for Star Wars or nostalgia for some kind of a franchise. But Mad Men kind of approached that from a different way because it was, I mean, it was hugely influential in terms of fashion and home design. I mean, there were millions of articles written about, you know, what it, what impact it had there. So in that sense, it was nostalgia. It just wasn't like nostalgia for how people were treated. Right. Um, and that's that gets back to where it's, like you said, kind of tricky uh, to balance those two things. It, it was so well done. I mean, in terms of its, you know, the way it, its accuracy in, in depicting the style and the culture and uh, and the wardrobes of the time and, and even the way people spoke and acted. Like it, now watching it several years later again, it it feels like it you know could have been made in the period that it depicts. It's yeah. that it's that well done. Yeah, no, I agree with that. And I hate I hate period things that are like sometimes you watch something that's set in a period and it feels like it's set at like an eighties party as opposed to in the actual eighties. Right, um, right, and, exactly. And, yeah. and this never never felt that way. Ever, ever, point, ever. There's a there's a I forget there's a Christmas party scene in one of the episodes where there's a woman wearing like a a green dress that's like brocade flowers. My mother had that. She had that, that dress. dress. I wore it to my homecoming dance in ninth grade. <laughs> and, she, and it was her dress from like the 60s. So it was very accurate. All right. F- final, final point before we go. So in watching it now, Don Draper uh, at the time, I think, struck me as complicated, dark, etc. And watching it now, he seems like a sociopath. <laughs> <laughs> And what, what, am I alone on this? No, I think that's fair. And I would say that part of the reason that you didn't completely, you know, dislike him or not want to watch him was because of John Hamm. Like, he has a really great way of, like, leaning into those dark parts of, of who Don is, but also just being sort of droll and, like, a little bit, like, I kind of want to be that guy, just minus the, all the lies and the and right. the <laughs> sleeping around and all the bad things that he does. Right. Yeah. Well, we hope you enjoyed uh, our conversation with John Slattery as much as Jen and I did, and uh, hope you'll be back with us next time on BASIC. BASIC is a Pantheon Media production in partnership with SiriusXM. Hosted by Jen Chaney and Doug Herzog. 
produced by Christian Swain and Peter Ferrioli. Lindley Ehrlich is our assistant producer. Sound design and music by Jerry Danielson. Mixed and mastered by Brian Slusher. Recorded and edited by Zach Spisner. You can find Basic on Apple Podcasts, the SiriusXM app, Pandora, Stitcher, or wherever you like to listen. If you like the show, please rate, review, and share so other people can find us. Don't forget to follow the show so you never miss an episode. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points.